0: Mm. So I just, you just need, need to, to practice, man. Let Let's keep practicing yeah, um, French.
1: Yeah, my my it. tongue is is still Hollywood and and uh, French is like uh, So it's it's kind of uh, the the muscles uh, need to <laughs> need to readjust, you know. Uh,
2: yeah, you got You got to learn how to pout.
1: What's pouting?
2: Yeah. <laughs> like this. The attitude. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> True. yeah. Welcome to Bitcoin Basics with your hosts, Faris and Gordon. Visit BitcoinBasics.help if you need help buying and securing your Bitcoin.
2: Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Basics podcast. Today's date is the 3rd of October. The price of Bitcoin is $19,202. You will get 5,200 Satoshis per dollar. And the block height, we're sitting at 756,778. So for today's episode, unfortunately, Gordon couldn't join us simply because it was unfeasible due to the um, time zones of this recording. I had three time zones to, um, to factor in. Uh, I spoke to two guests today. That's, um, Suli and Bam, and, um, we'll link in their Twitter profiles. You can follow them. I actually came across Bassam, or Bam, as he goes by, on one of our Twitter followers. And he has um, been working, he's an engineer, he's been working in Bitcoin, and he recommended that I um, have a chat with Sully as well. So both these guys are actually working with Bitcoin in the Middle East and Africa. Uh, this was a really special episode for me because that's where I grew up, in North Africa. A lot of my cultural roots are there. And just talking about um, Bitcoin adoption in this region... I'm very surprised that Bitcoin has not um, been more grow- widely accepted and adopted there. But talking to them, you can see the reasons why. Um, it was a really fun conversation for me. It was actually quite nostalgic as well. And this is a story that I want to keep following is Bitcoin adoption in that part of the world. So without further ado, I'm just going to launch in and um, we'll have this conversation with Bam and Sui.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, like, and share so we can find others like yourself.
0: Yeah. Hi. Um, I just <laughs> heard uh, from Bam about you and the podcast and um, whatever there is approach- an opportunity to talk about Bitcoin, I welcome it. But I'd like to get to know you a bit better, if you don't yeah, mind. Yeah, sure. Like-
1: um, now we're doing that. We? Sorry. <laughs>
0: Sorry.
1: It's... <laughs>
2: No, no it's fine, so yeah, it's not often I'm on this side. Um, so my name's Ferris. I was born in Cairo um, first sixteen years of my life were spread across North Africa. Um, went to Arabic primary schools, French private schools. didn't actually study in English until I was sixteen. did my last two years of school in America. Um, after that moved to Australia for university. Uh, that's actually where I met my co-host Gordon. Now, I'm sorry he can't join us. It's a bit early for him. It's 5 a.m. where he is. Um, I thought some of this might be in Arabic anyway. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so my I started working in the NGO sector. Uh, I did some work with uh, Jimmy Carter Center, Red Cross, Oxfam, bounced around in the NGO sector, um, then moved into some teaching. Uh, I taught international relations. And, um, on weekends, I'd always go to investment seminars, um, because, uh, the aid sector, NGO sector, you're helping other people out, but doesn't really, you know, feed your family. You're feeding other families, but not your own. So I was always a bit of an investment addict. And Gordon, I remember telling me about Bitcoin. And at the time I had young kids and just, um, did not have the bandwidth to absorb something new. And he was excited about the tech and, yeah, I just did not have it in me to go, okay, this is something I can delve into. Uh, 2016, I was listening to an interview, um, actually with Raoul Powell, who we've had on the show, and he was talking about the economic aspects of Bitcoin. And that's when I thought, okay, this I can understand, the economics behind it. So I started delving in a lot deeper, following uh, the work of Tour de Meester, Trace Mayer, Tony Vays. I was spending three to four hours a day just learning about Bitcoin. Um, and then where I lived, the uh, everyone kind of referred to me as a Bitcoin guy. I go to Ferris. He'll tell you about Bitcoin. So I contacted Gordon. I said, what do you think of a business where we, you know, educate people about Bitcoin and help them buy it? Uh, cause people are like, how do I buy this thing? How do I get in? What do I do? So he's like, actually, I was just about to call you with the same idea. Um, so we've been working. Uh, We were going to run workshops. we come for a weekend, uh, day one, learn about Bitcoin. We explain the tech, the economic fundamentals behind it. Uh, We've run some of these online. Uh, We've done some guest speaking spots. Um, Half of what we do is explaining the gold standard and the fiat um, standard. Um, Actually, a lot of it's covered in Saif Padin's book. Um, and then the second day is basically sit down with people, have your computer, your phone, and we show you how to um buy your bitcoins and move them into a cold storage device. That was a plan. And then the lockdowns happened. We couldn't do physical workshops. So we moved into the podcast. And the, the premise of the podcast is let's try and explain bitcoins simply to people because... People in this space, in the Bitcoin space, who have been in here for, you know, know, more than four or five years, they're, you know, adopting the lightning network. They're talking about Bitcoin bonds. They're talking about, you know, liquid, all this new stuff. Whereas average people still think, oh, I can't afford to buy one whole Bitcoin, so I'll get Bitcoin cash or I'll get Ripple. So there's this huge knowledge gap. And for us, we're targeting people that, I think I want to buy Bitcoin, how do I do it? And, you know, not, okay, let's set up your own node and your own minor. That comes later. But for now, people taking the first step in, you know, it's, I, I look at it as our audience is a people, um, first day, first week at university.
0: You're not expecting them to write a thesis. You're just giving them the, the foundations, the groundwork. Nice. Uh, you're talking to someone who spent 15, 16 years in the humanitarian international NGO sector from the end agencies, et cetera, worked with Oxfam through implemented projects for Oxfam, et cetera, and moving to the fiat world, I mean, and discovering Bitcoin and discovering, anyway, so, so nice to relate, man, uh, a lot, I have so much good memories of Australia as well. Uh, So it's really, really nice to connect. Um, You
1: you said you just learned English. You learned English when you were 16?
2: Uh, My mother's Australian, so we grew up speaking it in the house, but I didn't have any formal education in English until I was 16.
1: Mm. Mm. So you were speaking Arabic?
2: Yeah, a combination of Arabic and French. So my mother tongue, depending on the time in my life, my mother tongue changed. So I went to public Arabic schools in Morocco um, until I was 12, and then I went to French schools in Egypt. So from up until the age of 12, I was actually educated in Arabic. We did French once, one hour a week. Uh, and then I went to Cairo where I moved to a, a French lycée there. So from 12 till, um 16, uh, I was uh, trained in French. And then, yeah, English from 16 onwards. Spent most so, of my mm, childhood
0: nice. in a French lycée as well. Uh, Sorry? Uh, Faris, I spent most of my childhood in a French lycée as well in Lebanon. No, we, so how we was Arabic? My, my Arabic is shwaya shwaya. So, la, muslim al-arabi,
2: am abu Suri, and I, um, fil I, fil kahira. Al-arabi will I So, yeah. Sorry, for those of you who don't speak Arabic. My, yeah. So, Arabic is different in every country you go to. Kind of like English. You can't say English is the same in, you know, Scotland, South Africa, Australia, and America. It's, it's, and my Arabic is a combination of all the places I lived in. So when you speak to someone in the Arabic, they can pick up where you are from, just like you can understand someone's accent if they're speaking in English. Whereas people kind of stare blankly at me, go, "Man, where are you from?"
1: Yeah, <laughs> no, uh, no, but uh, I can, I can understand what you're saying. Like that's, uh, it, it's impressive that I, I can still understand each and every word that you're saying it's not like uh, vague or anything it's, no, it's
2: grand. Yeah. yeah it's quite funny <laughs> when i went to i was in beirut probably 10 years ago and um yeah i could not i thought all my and i hadn't been to this in quite some time and i thought all oh, my Arabic's terrible i could only understand 50 percent of what was going on but when i went to cairo the next week i was at 80 percent, and yeah i just i found the Lebanese Arabic is very much like the French speaking French is talk fast. And, and with the French, if, if you don't speak our language perfectly, then please don't. And I found the Lebanese were very much like that with the Arabic.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm struggling here in France. I mean, uh, I grew up in, uh, in the UAE, spent most of my life in Abu Dhabi. Uh, and I lived in Turkey also, but when, when I came to France, I I'm struggling so much right now with uh uh with the French language uh, because Arabic language usually we, we have we use uh, our tongue we, it's it's kind of a hard language whereas French is kind of melodic and you ha- there's a lot of vowels and uh, y- you don't know where the word is like finished and w- when the next word is starting they're all kind of connected uh, that's what I feel Mm-hmm. So I just, just need, need to, to practice, pre-
0: man. Let let's keep yeah, practicing um, in French.
1: Yeah, my my re- tongue is, is still Hollywood, and and uh, French is like uh, So it's it's kind of uh, the the muscles uh, need to <laughs> need to readjust, you know. Uh,
2: yeah, you got you got to learn how to pout.
1: What's pouting? Yeah.
2: <laughs> like this. The attitude. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True. yeah. So, so, Bam, let me, let me start with you. So I actually reached out to you on Twitter for, I had not thought of doing this before. But I jumped onto our Twitter. Oh, and it was on, on like, link, it was, LinkedIn. On LinkedIn. I, I think I came across you on Twitter to begin with. Um, oh, cause I was going through our Twitter followers and I was just wanting to say, oh, he's following us and cause we kind of, yeah, I just want to reach out and see who's in the same network. Um, and so yeah, just, Tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got on to our podcast and your, your Bitcoin journey, if, if you don't mind. And, and again, just yeah, don't talk yourself if you don't want to.
1: Yeah, sure. No. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm an I'm an engineer. I, well, first of all, uh, I'm from Syria and I, I grew up in Syria uh, until my uh, maybe uh, third year at school, elementary school. I went to the UAE. I, we moved, all of my family moved to uh, abu dhabi and we we lived there for i don't know 15 years 16 years like we spent a lot of time in in the uae that's where i that's where i learned english that's where i uh got introduced to a lot of uh, you know western friends and um, it changed my 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 culture a lot uh so after maybe when i graduated in high school i went to uh, Turkey. I studied uh, energy engineering, energy systems, uh, at uh, one of uh, Istanbul's universities, and uh, I had a lot of fun in Istanbul for about four or five years until the political turmoil started, uh, you know, to uh, to appear, you know, with the coup and with the, the whole uh, all of that stuff coming from from Syria, Iraq, and. Uh, there was a lot of uh, conflict in in that region. Uh, so uh, so then I I went to France and I'm based right now in France and I I have my uh, uh, small company, small business. I'm kind of an entrepreneur, uh, but I am an engineer. Uh, I got introduced uh, to Bitcoin when I was in UAE. Uh, I was just uh, I was studying in in high school, but I really. I was an entrepreneur and I wanted to uh, start receiving receiving money somehow through the internet. I, I just wanted to to do that. I didn't know how to and uh, there was no PayPal. I didn't have a bank account. And uh, even if you have, it's kind of hard because I'm Syrian and, uh, you know, Arabic nationalities uh they don't pass the verification process, especially Syrians. And so uh, I got introduced to Bitcoin. I just read about it when uh, I think 2012, 2013, I did not understand shit. I did not understand how it, because there was no material. There was only like, there's this network of money and then uh, it's protected by math. That's what I, uh, that's what I read and uh i said like okay if there's like just algorithms and stuff it might get hacked or something so i i didn't uh dive deep into it until maybe in uh a year or two i heard again about bitcoin uh, when mount gox uh exchange got hacked and i was like ah thank god you know i didn't uh, invest in this thing it's it's all a scam and stuff <laughs> and then uh maybe uh, two years later uh, i I read about it again, and uh, what caught my my I, I was uh thinking about since i'm an energy engineer I was thinking about like why aren't we using energy as our currency uh that was kind of uh my graduation project like I wanted to do something like like research in that uh, in that idea and so I started looking uh, for resources on did anybody think of this before? Like, maybe we can use like batteries, some kind of batteries that we can. <laughs> like, it was it was so stupid. But it, it, I I just had like like we need to use energy because energy is the most fundamental um, thing of value in the universe, really. And uh, uh, I find out that there are people who are working on that, and his name is Satoshi Nakamoto. And I Google Satoshi Nakamoto, and I find this like I don't know. Asian-looking person, uh, that was very confusing. And then I get into again Bitcoin. I'm like, okay, what is Bitcoin? Who's the CEO of Bitcoin? Because i I keep going back to the same thing every time I uh, go into a problem. I, uh, you know, I come to the same uh, solution, which is Bitcoin. And then uh, I saw on Wikipedia just the word decentralized. It was the first time I read it in English. Decentralized. I was like, okay, centralized is like there's one point and then decentralized. Oh, okay. So this is why I, can't, I couldn't find the CEO. I was looking for the CEO for a long time. And uh, once I read that, I was like, okay, that's it. This, this thing is, is not just a regular thing. This is like BitTorrent. This is a new internet protocol. I immediately, when I read the word decentralized, I was like, I need to dive really deep into it and to understand how it works. Uh, I used it. I downloaded a wallet and started the, uh, t- transacting in, in Bitcoin. I think that was back in 2016, maybe 2015, 16. Um, then I graduated. And when I graduated, I was like, uh, you know, I don't want to study masters. Again, I'm an intro- entrepreneur. I want to do something new. I really want to understand this system. And so, th- i didn't study masters i went to research bitcoin like that was my whole thing it was bitcoin and then blockchain technology that that's where i ventured into the other the other systems the 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 other coins and i'm i'm like okay we made money decentralized can we make everything decentralized and and so i started uh my my altcoin journey studying ethereum and uh, blockchains private blockchains public ones uh reading about DeFi, all of that started um uh getting into smart contracts trying trying to understand how uh, ethereum works uh but little by little um i started meeting bitcoiners i didn't like the whole time maybe six seven years or something uh I was just alone with YouTube, and so I didn't meet with anyone uh, who was interested in the same uh, same topics uh, as I. And so, uh, when Clubhouse in two thousand and maybe twenty 2020 twenty or twenty twenty one, I don't remember, uh, I started meeting with the Bitcoin maximalists for the first time and getting introduced to all of these geniuses uh, and. Getting to know Bitcoin really deeply, uh, and then I was like, okay, what about the other stuff? And I saw like a lot of uh, a lot of energy against <laughs> against the other stuff, against blockchain, against uh, crypto. And I was like, why? What what is going on here? And uh, luckily, I met with Suli and uh, other Arabic Bitcoiners who uh, who's you know they were much nicer than the. <laughs> than the American maximalists and the Western maximalists. So they were much more open to explaining, you know, the basics why Bitcoin and not the other shit, basically. And so, yeah, uh, that's my journey. Maybe uh, like two years ago, I was full on Bitcoin, like just Bitcoin and how can I build Bitcoin? And Bitcoin is the future. And how, how can we bring Bitcoin to the Middle East? Yeah, so that's what we're doing right
2: now. No, thank you very much, Bam. Um, I will ask you guys both actually about Bitcoin adoption in the Middle East. Um, But Suli, do you mind giving us a bit bit of background as to uh, your journey?
0: Sure. Um, So I'm uh, Suli. Uh, I'm Lebanese, born and raised. Uh, Moved to Europe for my fiat job. And my fiat job uh has been taking me a bit uh between Africa, the Middle East and Europe, um meeting different sorts of industries, sectors, etc. Um th- and then basically I moved to Europe like eight years ago and uh I was been constantly um roving around these uh, three continents. Uh, I was always a tech nerd. Uh, I demounted my first PC. I was seven years old. And um, yeah, I did study some computer science back in UD, then shifted to business. And then um, I heard about Bitcoin in 2014. <laughs> a friend of mine, just like, I remember that night, I saw him like last month in Lebanon. And I told him, do you remember 2014 when you told me about like, go check Bitcoin? I said, yes, I never did. Um and then, 2016, uh, I started uh, trading uh, traditional financial markets uh, just as a hobby on the side, um, just like testing the waters, uh, practicing, learning. Took some um, like technical analysis courses and trying to uh, live the trader's kind of uh, zone, which was very unhealthy. Uh, on a personal level, uh, like trying to keep up uh, with time for you to sleep enough to have uh, social uh, time uh, proper for your family, your friends, for yourself. Basically, you don't have a low time preference if you're trading at all. Okay. So, and I had no clue about what was like low time preference versus uh, high time preference, and then 2017, I started like um, Bitcoin started uh, popping up on the news and my like trading news, you know, uh, I was like, okay, so this must be like uh, something to look into. And it was like, not very difficult to pick up that there is like uh, a drop in a price. Uh, back then it reached like, I don't know, um it was much less than $5,000. Um, I just put it just a little bit, and then it dropped again. So I was like, okay, I'm buying more. Um, and back then, I started hearing about the the altcoins if we can say shitcoins on your podcast or not, I don't know um <laughs> I don't know if uh, I didn't know the difference it all what's... the time so don't worry <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I de- I did not know if it, what it was I dealt with it just like any other um asset in the market without knowing the anything any fundamental uh, about it and then I noticed that um yeah everything is following bitcoin in the crypto space and whatever so-called crypto follows Bitcoin upwards and downwards. Um, and then I was like, okay, uh, I was managing my portfolio in a way where like, I tried to um, invest from my profits into new assets or to uh, weigh in further in some assets and exits from other assets. So I decided to, uh, you know what, let me just exit from all these crypto non-Bitcoin and keep everything in Bitcoin because it's like, okay, it's slower, but it's like I don't have to really keep up with these influencers on social media, etc. All, all the BS, basically. And then uh, 2019, um, I started getting more and more convinced, but not really deep enough. Uh, corona hits. I meet uh, a Lebanese Bitcoiner, Marco. Uh, Marco is the founder of uh of the biggest bitcoin uh, educational community in lebanon um and we start like challenging each other he's like, like he he had this toxicity that i didn't get first, but it was really interesting to me like really why bitcoin and not anything else um since corona twenty twenty uh things got I was a Bitcoin-only guy, not from the fundamentals. So I began, I started reading the books, the, like, spending, I don't know, I think I spent thousands of hours since <laughs> diving in Bitcoin. Um, over time, I started, like, trying to orange pill as many people as I know and even people I encounter And then got approached by uh, Swan Bitcoin, started um, supporting their advisory for the Middle East and North Africa strategy. So I got to know amazing, brilliant people and then uh, started also like in parallel networking with uh, Arabic Bitcoiners, uh, BAM, Arabic HODL. Uh, there are a bunch of maxis now, uh, in the, in the Arabic world trying to really connect and build some Arabic content because back in the day, 2017, 2018, 2019, um, most of the content was in, uh, Western languages. Uh, there wasn't, if there was, it was only translated and recently, um different Arab maxis are trying to Um, contribute with more uh, audio-visual podcasts, uh, uh, audio or videos, just uh, like we're doing.
2: Thank you very much, guys. So I've just picked up a pen because there's a lot of things you guys have brought up I actually want to talk about, but but thank you very much for um, your background. And yeah, I can relate where you guys are talking about, where you've been, where you've lived. It's my history as well. Um, So you Help making me reminisce about some very good times in my life. Um, you both mentioned um Bitcoin maximalism, um, and in that same phrase, um, rudeness and toxics. And this is something that the community does get criticized for, just the toxicity for being Bitcoin only, and being patience for anyone who brings up an altcoin. Do you mind just talking about that a little bit more? Just you know, you because all I do is I see it on Twitter, and that's you know, Twitter is not in real life, which people need to be reminded of, I think. But, uh, what, what were your personal journeys like when yeah you wanted to explore blockchain, altcoins, anything that wasn't Bitcoin? So, just do you mind elaborating on that a little bit?
1: Uh, m- maybe, maybe I'll start, uh, because I, I dove deep really into the technicals of. Uh, how the other systems work. And uh, the problem is that you have a lot of people who are technically minded and they like uh, the networks, the blockchain networks, uh, and they don't really pay attention that much to the economics of it. And the economics is really important. Once I started uh, reading the Bitcoin standard and uh, knowing why hard money is something that is uh, that solves that solves a lot of problems especially uh in in the middle east uh, especially in underprivileged communities uh this is where i was like okay maybe the other stuff uh have some kind of value uh u- utility value but they don't have a monetary value and so if if i'm pitching uh these other altcoins and telling people like uh, look, look they might change something on the internet they might do something yeah they might do that but the problem is that they won't have a lot of value and the problem is that there's inflation there's hyperinflation everywhere and so you, you, we we need to focus on that side of of the equation as well not just what uh you know these technologies may or may not do And uh, I understand that some technologies offer privacy, for example, Uh, other ones offer uh, a way to transact in stable coins, maybe. And this is also good for underprivileged communities, maybe in Lebanon, in Syria. At the same time, uh, the main message uh, that people need to hear is the solution to inflation uh and bitcoin the asset solves that and bitcoin the network also uh, lightning network uh it it solves a lot of uh, our problems and so uh i get why why the, there are kind of toxic people there's a multitude of reasons uh if we may talk about maximalism is something that i was against at first uh because i don't like to be labeled uh, because once you once people start labeling you as something, then it's easy to to attack that label instead of uh, attacking your arguments or, you know, um, analyzing your arguments. And so b- but the problem is that th- there's a real use case, I think, for Bitcoin mass- maximalism. There's a real case to be made. Uh, and I think Pete, uh, I don't remember his last name, he's, he's a journalist in Forbes. He wrote a lot about uh, why maximalism is important and the definition of it. Basically, uh, you know, you you need to preserve the code. You need to preserve Bitcoin, okay? Bitcoin has this uh, hard-coded set of rules that uh, nobody should alter. And we shouldn't alter... If we would to ever change it, it should be with caution. And we should... uh, Really know what we're doing and really calculate all of the uh, consequences, the, the unintended consequences b- before making any changes and move slowly. And this kind of culture is not present in any other cryptocurrency uh, because they don't understand the economics of, uh, of money. So that's one reason. The other, uh, the, the, there are a lot of reasons uh, also. Uh, but that, this is the main thing that uh, that people don't, don't get when, when, especially people from a technical background, they go like, why not just, it's code, let's change it. It's like, no, man, it's, uh, the, the human race is going to adopt one form of money for transferring value and to, to start trading with one another. And we need to all agree on these rules and we can't change them. And it has to be immutable. Uh, and has to be verifiable. The the, uh, the maximum supply of Bitcoin has to be known by everyone, and everyone has to run a node. The people in Syria needs to run Bitcoin, and the people in Sudan uh, they also need to have the opportunity to uh, uh, to to engage in um, to participate in consensus, basically. And if we're not allowing them uh because because we want to build a programmable blockchain uh then what are we doing here then we're building technology for the western world really uh, that's what i think i don't know
2: thank you yeah there's a lot of things i should want to follow up on that um thank you bam um, now Sully, so what about your experience with bitcoin maximalism how did you have you come across it or what yeah, what challenges or benefits did that provide you,
0: and your thoughts on it? So, for the for the people listening for the first time, not hearing the term "Bitcoin maximalism" or "toxic maximalists" in Bitcoin, um, what is toxicity? In my opinion, uh, toxicity is you reach. Uh, there are. M- different points. Um, I'd like just to, I'm gonna mention them, not in in sequence yet. We need to look at life in general. Um, you have for me, you can see either black or white and some people see gray areas. Um, once you know that black is your color, you would be defending your color. Some other people who don't understand black or don't understand white might pick gray just for convenience. Um, in Bitcoin, looking at anything, we should look at history. Um Everyone in Bitcoin trying to understand Bitcoin maximalism and Bitcoin uh, fundamentals should look at the 2017 war on Bitcoin and the block size war on Bitcoin. Um, If you own Bitcoin today, regardless if you're a Max or not, and you see value in Bitcoin, that's thanks to the maximalists in 2017. That's thanks to the people who believe that Bitcoin should be protected, secure, just like Bam was saying. Uh, These are the people who were so toxic, made sure that 51% of the network did not not give in to changing the protocol of Bitcoin. Thanks to them, Bitcoin has its value today. Um, The same applies in everything. Um, So in my opinion, um, once you understand Bitcoin, you would become so protective over its fundamentals that you can pick two 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 ways to orange pill someone. Uh, you can either have the the moderate way, uh, trying to onboard someone who's like explaining and like come forward explaining the, the, the whole uh, story why Bitcoin. And you can choose the toxic way. Toxic way is to be, you need to be like, it's only Bitcoin and you shouldn't care about anything else. And if it's not Bitcoin, it's, um, I'm not going to really uh, give you my time to explain. Uh, that's what I've seen on social media in 2020. Um, I started really, I was like in panels and like sessions and rooms, um, talking to, all different sorts of people from different cultures and i noticed there's there is a thin line for me like for me i consider myself a maxi i'm a rationalist until i face situations where i need to be toxic like there are there are there are people who just troll man it's like they they want to market their own project They want to uh, market their own uh, digital crypto project. And when you ask them fundamental questions about like, if your unlimited supply is, if your supply is unlimited, where's the value? If your validators on the network cost a lot of money to build and to become a validator, which means having a node, means it's not decentralized. And then that's another fundamental. A third fundamental is like, don't tell me, for example, that your project is decentralized when it's uh, managed by a CEO or a marketing department or a foundation. Like, and okay, like I I, I became like, uh, and I think Bam and a lot of the clubhouse people um, know how toxic and aggressive maybe I was like really fiery at first. And that fire started to come down because I started to realize uh, toxicity should be used, but not from the beginning. Uh, for me, um, let them burn their their toes and fingers uh, playing around uh, with everything non Bitcoin. Everything um, like shitcoining is healthy for Bitcoin. Uh, everyone dealing with shit coins would eventually know why Bitcoin. Um, so, yeah, for me, I think that's that's my two my two thoughts on uh, toxicity. In brief, <laughs> since we need to talk about other points as well.
1: No, I Are, really appreciate that, guys. Sorry, go ahead, man. Uh, I just want to say, like, uh, I don't know who, who said that. I think Lin or Gigi, uh, they said, you can't have a 21 million cap without toxicity. Okay. You, you can't have that hard money without tux- toxicity. I, I don't think you can. I don't think you can have a censorship-resistant uh, network without people defending that network and running the software and preserving the rules of the network. The, yeah.
0: Sorry, just uh, so, sorry, Faris. I, I need to touch this, this point. Um, everyone should research and spend time in... What, uh, how the financial, the world monetary system is shifting towards, we're shifting to a centralized, programmable money run by central banks. If you don't know what it means, please look it up. And if you know what it means, you should know that we are, if you, if you value your own freedom, um, you should stand for your, stand up for your, for your freedom. And if you're okay, anyone like stepping on your freedom, good for you. I'm not like that. If someone's going to try to step on me, I'm going to be toxic. The same, And Bitcoin is freedom. So if you're okay with uh, no one really stepping on freedom for you or your family or whoever you care about or for humanity, just look into Bitcoin. Like the, the thing is, I've seen the media and people and influencers from the crypto space consider Bitcoiners um, brainwashed or like they think they are, we are just, it's a conviction. It's not a conviction, it's science and math. And if you look into the, Mm -hmm. if you want to believe CNN and BBC and all the mainstream media, good for you (laughs) and good luck to be free. But that's not the way. So, yeah. yeah. No, this
2: is resonating a lot with me, and actually a lot with my experience. The uh 2017 um, scaling wars terrified me because no one really knew what was going to happen. And yeah, I remember not sleeping thinking, you know, am I getting in this at the worst possible time when Bitcoin's going to die? Um, but yeah, and... So one thing I want to talk about is you both mentioned decentralization, and this is a key component of everything we teach here at Bitcoin Basics, and we it's what we explain a lot. And it's when it was explained to me from a tech side, that's when I really appreciated Bitcoin. Um recently I looked at an article about um crypto Bitcoin adoption. And the top 20 adoption countries, only one of them is North African and Middle Eastern. Um and I was surprised. I thought if you look at you know currency devaluation, that's happening in Turkey, that happened in Egypt a few years ago. But these places were ripe to look into Bitcoin. Culturally, so Middle Eastern culture, Islamic culture, is you know one of a monarchy, a king, and that is very much the figurehead of the country. Is decentralization maybe a, a gap or just something preventing people from trusting Bitcoin? It's like, you know, like Bam said before, there's no CEO, there's no face on the money. I can't take faith in People I don't know, I need a figurehead. Is that? Do you think that's part of the culture that why there's just no adoption to Bitcoin?
1: Yeah, if, if I may answer this, because this is very important, especially in Eastern uh, Eastern communities, because we don't think in terms of the individual, we think in terms of the family, the, the family figure. It's like, it's top down, it's not bottom up. Whereas in the West, it's individuality, it's bottom up. And so this is one of the things that I uh, uh, struggled with in explaining Bitcoin to people in, uh, by, by telling them you will have individual sovereignty. It's like if you tell them about individuality, it's like you, you might sound a little bit egotistic or selfish. But if you tell them like Bitcoin is good for you and for your family and for your community and basically for your country or nation, then that's that message resonates with them much more. Uh, that's something that Western people don't really get. It's like who cares about like you know it's Like you need to protect yourself basically, you know. So uh, and I like how how the um, technology of Bitcoin is kind of going into the multisig and community uh, community banks and uh, Fedements. These things are. Going to be uh, used a lot, I think, in Eastern, uh, in Eastern regions, um, and that's something also we are trying to uh, experiment with when we are presenting our content. So basically, we start the podcast. If we want to talk about the Lightning Network, uh, we say, "Okay, here's what the Lightning Network is and what it can do, how it works, and what are the benefits of the Lightning Network." And then here's how it can benefit us as a community, as Arabs, as people. Uh, And then uh, here's how it can also benefit the individual. And then we we ended by uh, pitching uh, policymakers and the people at the top, telling them we should build on lightning, we should mine, for example. This is mining. What are the benefits of mining? and uh, how you can do it. And then uh, the legislatures need to uh, basically unban it if it's banned or uh, legalize it or, you know, not uh, being uh, hostile to mining, okay? It's good for the grid. It's good for everyone. So this is our approach was kind of uh, bottom up and top down at the same time, you know, we're, Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, the the concept of working with family, and yeah, as, I never thought of that before, but as you mentioned, self-sovereignty, and that, that is the key word that we are now hearing, becoming a sovereign individual. Yeah, that would be such a discord in um in the Middle Eastern countries where the focus is on the family and the community, you say, oh, I'm a sovereign I, I always, individual.
1: I always uh, mention the word national sovereignty and community mm. sovereignty and family sovereignty more than individual sovereignty. Those things are all um, intertwined, kind of, when you... Uh, I like Thomas from al podcast, he's a Lebanese, uh, Lebanese Bitcoiner. He said, like, you know, Bitcoin is a Trojan horse for freedom and for individuality. Also. Mm. So, you know, we can we can do that. We can say, like, okay, it's good for the family, good for the nation. At the end of the day, people are like... Uh, are, gonna uh you know this message is going to resonate with a lot of minds and they're gonna start using bitcoin and they're gonna say oh well i have my own wallet just like i have my own uh profile on facebook that's the thing all of the technologies that's being imported by the west is kind of individualistic we have our own profiles each person has their own instagram and stuff uh it's It's kind of uh, weird to witness, but uh when Eastern populations are faced with a Western technology, it sometimes brings a lot of problems if if you're not aware of the cultural differences uh then uh, th- there might be uh, some problems down the road
2: sorry, this is a term I'm familiar with and grew up with, but in your own words, Bam and Sully, this when you say the West, what are you guys talking about?
1: For me, I would say yeah. I would say individuality. Uh, that, that, that's the, the word that pops in my head, individuality. And I like, I love it. Uh, by the way, I'm, I'm not a collectivist. I don't like collectivism. I really, uh, I mean, I like to treat people as individuals. I don't like to associate them with their groups. Uh, we all come from groups, but uh, that's the way I look at people and I enjoy that uh, view of that perspective. Sorry. Uh,
0: the West for me is like all the West from Lebanon, which is like the West of the Mediterranean Sea, like Europe from Europe to to uh, North America. Uh, it stops there because the other, the East side is the East basically. Uh, and it's, it's funny because if you open the, the word map, uh, Lebanon is almost just in the middle. So it makes sense. West and East for me. Uh, but just, I'd like Mm -hmm. to, to add on the BAM's answer to your decentralization question and when it comes in regards of the Middle East adoption today, um, there are multiple factors, um, and we need to differentiate between Bitcoin adoption and a Bitcoin standards adoption. Uh, today, Bitcoin is being adopted um, in the world uh, based on the need uh, um, in different markets, different countries. So different different individuals, um, depending where you are in the world, you would understand or find Bitcoin interesting based on your needs. In the Middle East, Middle East is divided so much um, culturally, economically, politically, that each of the countries is perceiving Bitcoin differently. Uh, I'm going to talk about Lebanon, for example. Lebanon today, for example, um, in 2019, one dollar was equivalent to uh, 1,500 Lebanese pounds. Today, each dollar is equivalent to 38,900. In the 70s, $1 reached 2.5 uh, liras, Lebanese pounds. Today in Lebanon, uh, the country is in a crisis. Uh, whoever doesn't know, like the banks are bankrupt. Um, uh, th- there's enough problems that the Lebanese citizen is barely keeping up, surviving day to day. Um Paying two electricity bills because he needs to have two uh, generators. Uh, and if you can't afford a generator, there's each neighborhood has a generator and you need to pay them uh, money for your electricity because the government can does not provide electricity. The same for water and all the basic necessities. With inflation, families are barely surviving. Um, for businesses, the same. So Bitcoin today is being used as um, a medium of exchange somehow. If someone needs to uh, transfer money and he cannot because his bank account is closed, he's doing so. Um, stable coins, unfortunately, are uh, more adopted in the Middle East and in Africa. Um, so in economic turmoils, uh, the citizens were drawn to uh, make transactions uh, when you have a lack of foreign currency um they don't look for a store of value uh directly they look for store of value obviously but it's uh it's the reflex is not to go to bitcoin or ask about bitcoin um yet i know that millions of dollars uh were were transacted over bitcoin from lebanon uh, at the beginning of the of the turmoil um last since last uh, since 2019 but if you see the adoption for other stablecoins, it's skyrocketing. Uh, there are businesses, agencies opening in Lebanon uh, that can you can have a, a stablecoin delivery uh, to your house, like uh, like an agent would come to you, would transfer you the stable coin first, and then you pay him. That's the etiquette now. Like it's really mind blowing uh, how big the it's it's becoming. The same in Turkey. Um, and other places in the world Um, now who are the 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 organizations generating these reports about adoption Um, there are multiple reports i've seen multiple and each gives a different ranking. sometimes i see turkey on the ranking sometimes not sometimes i see lebanon sometimes not so again um it's not uh, hundred percent yet we're still at the beginning, this is one thing. There are two main factors as well. Um, the geopolitical uh, position of the Middle East is quite complex, right? So um, you have allies, they would be okay transacting between each other within a currency, but they don't want the, the rest to to transact within the same currency. So this is an issue, uh, which in my opinion is going to take ages, to to solve i think i don't know this is another topic to talk about but the second point is um is bitcoin halal or not and this is um a completely different um topic where today uh can i say saudi arabia the the gulf most of the people that are Dealing with Bitcoin, they're mainly trading it uh, as just another uh, trading asset class. They're not looking at it as a currency. And the moment we hear that Bitcoin is officially halal by the whoever is centralizing the decision, <laughs> uh, that I think, in my opinion, the doors of adoption mm-hmm. is going to be really skyrocketing. This,
2: actually, sorry, i would just interrupt briefly. I want to come back to you. But Islamic financial is something I wanted to talk about. But just for our audience, can you please explain Halal?
0: Okay. This is not financial uh, advice. I'm not like uh, no, no, an Islamic no, we, finance we advice. We have not no, a plenty a of on the
2: show. Don't worry. Okay. Um, <laughs> just, for- there's the term Halal. I'm sure people have seen that and they go, oh, it's
0: related to food. But obviously, it's yes, more than that. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, when it comes to um, halal and, and and currencies, so it's if you want to simplify it, uh, and please anyone can correct me if I'm wrong, and I must maybe uh, use the the wrong analogies here, but I'm gonna just try to keep it simple. Um, halal money is is a money that is not state, so basically if you put your money in a bank and you get interest on it, just like you put your crypto in a, on an exchange and you get staking uh, interest on it, that this, this is not halal. All right. So if you understand... Not halal,
1: because, not halal, uh, not halal meaning not allowed in Islam to
2: yes, do this forbidden. Yes, right? yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Basically, I mean, banned or forbidden. Um,
0: yes, yes. Uh, not okay. It, reminds, maybe, me actually,
2: not okay. Yeah, it <laughs> reminds me of an old joke. Yeah. Um, an American and a Saudi Arabian are talking and the American says to Saudi Arabian, you don't have freedom of speech in Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabian says, what do you mean? And the American says, well, I can stand at the gates of the White House and just yell out, uh, President Trump is an idiot. I don't like him. The Saudi Arabian goes, of course you have freedom of speech. I can stand in front of King Saud's palace and yell, President Trump's an idiot. I don't like him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, but basically, uh, halal is like... Um, s- nothing related to interests when like it's without being uh, biased in any way and I don't consider myself uh, a conservative Muslim as well um, Bitcoin is the halal money currency that ever been in our hands in the hands of humanity ever And uh, for that, there are different resources. You mentioned Saifuddin earlier that you base your workshops. You use uh, the gold standard, the Bitcoin standard book in your workshops. And the fiat standard, his second book, uh, there is a part where he introduces, he addresses uh, this issue, riba. Riba is the interest on money in in, uh, Islamic finance. Um, And there's a lot happening on this side when it comes to content. Is Bitcoin halal or not? Um, On Twitter mainly, I have some. And, uh, threads as well, uh, but yeah, uh, that's 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 one of the reasons why you don't see Mid- the Middle East adopting Bitcoin more uh, today. In the Middle East, uh, the UAE. If you go to Dubai, you can buy properties uh, in Bitcoin. Um, you can uh, you can register um, a Bitcoin uh, company in 24 hours mm. get residencies open a bank account so there is this sort of adoption you don't hear of they're supporting this concept but when it comes from a uh from a layer one uh, monitoring <laughs> seeing how many middle easterns are owning bitcoin that's still lacking lagging behind so yeah and
2: the, um, the i mean i think even binance is setting up their main headquarters in dubai they're moving them from singapore to dubai i think but so is this if you are seeing as someone in the Middle East who is adopting Bitcoin, is this seeing as you are turning your back on your culture? Is that is that part of that dichotomy? Or is it how are, you know, if you were to say to someone, oh, buy Bitcoin, are they seeing this as you are adopting Western values? Is that oh, That's the kind of thinking I, you know, I grew up with in the Middle East, but is that old thinking? Because for people to understand Islam, Middle Eastern culture, everything's tied together. Um, I think in you know America, everywhere else you can you can have your religion, you can have your finances, you can have your identity, three separate things in the Middle East, everything's tied together. so is that could that be part of the problem? Is if you're going to Bitcoin, you are challenging everything of who you are.
1: yeah, I, I would say uh, there is no consensus around whether Bitcoin is completely halal or completely haram. So just to clarify. Uh, because these two words are very uh, close together. Haram means forbidden with an R. Halal means uh, it's allowed. And uh, Bitcoin now is in a gray area, gray zone, where some uh, theologists would say that it's it should be forbidden because there is no, um, uh, there is no physical uh, nature to it, not like gold or silver but then again the argument is that you know we're not we're using paper money right now and we're using ledgers so it doesn't make any sense and then uh the other side says well comp- it's not just halal it's like the most halal money that is ever invented because nobody can uh meddle with it uh, at all it's easy to verify it's easy to know how much the supply of it the maximum supply so uh, it, it's different than gold. is It's more halal than gold, better than gold. And so uh, there isn't a lot of debate, I guess. Uh, uh, socially speaking, yes, if, if Bitcoin becomes halal, everyone is agreeing on that, then we would see, as Sully just mentioned, that like we would see a huge wave of investors uh, just uh, buying Bitcoin as property uh however uh right now a lot of people are not sure about it uh, it depends on who you listen to basically and it depends on do you think for yourself uh when you are making these decisions uh or we call it tafakkur in islam uh do you or uh, do you depend on a centralized authority like uh, Azhar, uh, Azhar Mosque. I don't know what it's called in. Uh, there's a religious authority in Egypt, and there is a religious authority in Saudi Arabia. So it really depends on the individual or on the family here. Um, I uh, I see. Th- th- also, there's a difference between the approach that uh, Middle Eastern uh, countries that produce, that have oil, that have a lot of uh, resources, uh, and the approach that. The countries that don't have a lot of resources and they depend on the IMF. Okay, so so these countries uh, they fall into different categories uh, and the way that they approach Bitcoin might be um, sometimes uh, hostile, sometimes uh, welcoming. I think in uh, Dubai they are welcoming. Uh, they're welcoming Bitcoin, the asset uh, you can save in it and they are welcoming innovation uh lightning network uh, right now is s- some projects i think Op- open node is building in bahrain and there is another um another project that is built uh, being built right now with lightning in dubai I-, I-, I don't remember its name but so uh when it comes to fintech uh and technology dubai is leading the world in uh in these domains and i think they're g- going to welcome bitcoin uh as a way to transfer value but they don't want the full bitcoin standard where you use bitcoin to pay for goods Immediate, not, not like you are sending for example dirhams, and then transferring them to saudi arabia they will switch to reals on lightning you know you get to send uh national currencies as fast as uh, as fast as the, the internet basically and without fees that, that's, that strikes uh, example of, of building on, on Bitcoin and I think they like that. They like this idea of uh, a new technology that is going to make people's lives easier. But when it comes to adopting the Bitcoin standard, where you use Bitcoin as a currency and as an asset, and you get rid of the dollar and get rid of the dirham, I don't think that's going to happen soon. <laughs> yeah,
0: I'm sorry, Suli, you want to so, jump in? Yes, um, about the if Bitcoin is perceived as uh, the West uh, intervening um back to your question about um you saying that the middle east is like when you have monarchs and things are tight uh yes uh yet in the middle east um for example you have like um, not all the middle east has royalties and monarchy uh systems um yet today the there isn't quite a, a an association between bitcoin and the west there is more of a Association with Bitcoin and liberalism. And that's where, um, the, the nuance is like, obviously Bitcoin is freedom and governments wants to control more control via central banks. Uh, talking about Lebanon, the whole, the biggest Ponzi scheme in the banking history that is being taught. In universities is what happened in 2019 in Lebanon uh, through the central banks and if any country would to be adapting um, a Bitcoin standard regardless in the Middle East or in Europe or in the West um, that would be a huge disadvantage for the governments and they would be perceiving it as a threat. This is why uh, sailor and the best sales spokesman of of bitcoin to try to uh work on the tech aspect the store of value aspect not to get bitcoin uh attacked from a um from that uh angle i don't think i think bitcoin today is associated with liberalism and the 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 the, the less liberal the country is the more likely Bitcoin would be uh, defended or attacked uh, in that sense. Uh, but frankly, the Middle East has been uh, has been opening up throughout the this decade. At least this decade, we've been witnessing open mindedness for a lot of countries in the Middle East that we never imagined would uh, yeah. happen, uh, like basic. Basic uh, human rights um, haven't, like, we, we we always wondered if we will be like, we'll have the same rights as the West, as humans. Um, Lebanon has always been the, the most open-minded country, but I'm talking about the rest of the countries where they were less liberal. Uh, well, today, businesses are opening up. Uh, today, um, expats are looking to work in the Middle East, to live mm-hmm. in, the, in the Middle East, to be based in the Middle East. So it's no, it's, it's, um, that's, that's maybe the last decade, uh, in 2022, um, liberalism is increasing. It's just that the governance wants to, to make sure that everything should be, should stay in control. Okay. And, uh, that would be it.
2: I'm really glad you caught me up on that because yeah, you can't, when we say the Middle East and North Africa, we have to talk about a geographical region because culturally, I remember going first time I went to Beirut. I went from Cairo to Beirut. I've had two culture shocks in my life. The first one was when I went to an American high school. The second one was when I went to Beirut because I was expecting something like Cairo. And you go to Hamra, it's nothing like Cairo. I yeah, I I felt like I landed in the set of Baywatch. meets known on two one zero or something. It was just out of this world for me. It's like is, I've never experienced Middle East like this. And um, and I was talking to someone on the plane, um, and he. You know, we're saying that in, you go overseas, someone will tell you that they're Lebanese. Inside Lebanon, no one will tell you they're Lebanese. They're Druze, they're Shiite, they're Sunni. It's, you know, that's, and that's the way Lebanon is still represented, I think 17 or 18 different factions represented in the parliament. Um, so no, thanks for catching me up on that because it is such a diverse place. And it's funny. This only just occurred to me as we've been talking, but in all the stuff that I've been listening to about Bitcoin, um, and this is an analogy I use as you talk about the pyramids to describe the blockchain. Every block in the blockchain is like a block in the pyramid. And we talk about the value of math. And I've explained this to people where math is the world's truly universal language. Um, we could be speaking in Arabic. Um, most of our audience wouldn't hear us. But if we put math, math on a screen, pretty much every country in the world, every person in the world will know that mathematical equation. All these are born in the Middle East. Algebra is born in the Middle East. The pyramids, all the everything that we use to describe Bitcoin, almost everything is actually born in the Middle East, the cradle of civilization. So I'm kind of like, how is it that the Middle East is not just grasping this like El Salvador? Um, and this brings into, you guys mentioned this before, Saudi Arabia, the petrodollar system. You guys brought that up. Um, so I think with El Salvador adopting a Bitcoin standard, um, you know, America and the WTO IMF, the Bretton Woods institutions basically said, you guys do this. You're going to be cut off from international funding. And our seminal president just said, we don't give a fuck. He actually responded in the tweet to that. Now, obviously the Middle East does not have that pleasure because it's a much bigger institution. They're tied to the petrodollar system from the 1970s. Is there, do you think there's that fear amongst people that hang on, if we adopt Bitcoin standards, we are becoming Enemy number one to the institutions at hand. Um, we're putting a target on ourselves. Is is that relevant in any way?
0: I don't think so. I think today the uh, it's it's not about Bitcoin. It's about the dollar. Today it's uh, like the biggest. I think the biggest uh, Middle Eastern company is Aramco. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Saudi Arabia's um, petroleum industry, yeah. Yes, yeah. um, you have like accepting bitcoin as a bitcoin standard again is different than um encouraging or like accepting bitcoin as a, a store of value or as a property for governments, uh, depends which way they would take. Um, but I don't think, um it's gonna be it's it would be perceived um from that angle. Um today there's so much um like let's think about let's talk about the present specifically. Um the whole the whole world is looking at the dollar as uh, an escape from the from the fiat currencies that are collapsing um in Lebanon uh in Argentina in Venezuela whenever the, or in Syria whenever there is a the um any economic or social turmoil or like a crisis citizens would go directly to exchange their local currency that is devaluing to the dollar which is like still the hardest fiat money out of the rest of the fiat monies um now what would the middle eastern businesses do if they have like, uh, like billion, um like a billion dollars um profits from their business or in liquidity would they keep them in usd with all the recession coming and the stagflation coming and the inflation coming uh or they would be investing somewhere else if they would be i mean them to invest in bitcoin um that is still some it's it's a new territory unexplored territory today the, for the petrodollar you need 3 trillion dollars a day liquidity to transact um um and in, in, uh for oil within the, the middle east okay um no, you don't you 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 barely have uh, 370 uh billion dollars today on uh, on bitcoin um so it's, uh, it's a combination of factors. I think today the dollar is still uh, governing in the Middle East. And today the petrodollar has two conditions. The oil to be priced uh, in dollar versus U.S. military protection. That was the deal. It wasn't only being, pricing it in, <laughs> in dollars. The return was protection from them, from, uh, the states. That was the deal. Um, things have ch- are changing. Geopolitical, uh, dynamics are changing. Uh, the Middle East is no longer 100% relying, reliant on, on the US anymore. Uh, there are quite interesting things happening. Uh, and they keep us focused on COVID and all the, the mainstream media topics without us like, checking what's happening, but there are really interesting things happening behind the scenes that are against the petrodollar. Uh, interest, like the Middle East is showing interest in other currencies uh, when it comes to uh, the oil and gas transactions. Uh, there are a lot of swapping happening uh in the UAE and Oman when it comes to oil, uh, uh, when it comes to weaponry, military alliances and uh, suppliers uh, su- supplying the Middle East that are coming from places... I wonder if it was okay back in, uh, uh, petrodollars, uh, Bretton Woods agreements, um, uh, back then. So I think we're, we're going to see very exciting differences or like changes happening in the coming decade. Uh, and
2: yeah, what we've seen in the last 10 years is, is phenomenal. Just, um, like Iran now transacting with China and Russia where the Iran, sorry, China set up its own gold standard. So they're looking at getting off of the, the petrodollar system. Um, the, uh, U.S. naval fleet just moving out of most of the world. And this is one thing we saw as a drawback of naval fleet. And I think, you know, the sixth fleet based out of Bahrain, that's the last main one standing. And yeah, for, um, what Sully was talking about, it's worth reading, uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. He goes into detail about the, um, how the 1974, um, Oil crisis, petrol crisis, and the deal that America set up with uh, the kingdom of Saud then. Um, yeah, amazing, amazing read that one. Um, yeah, the petrodollar industry, to me, that will be the big flip thing when they decide um, we no longer want to use petrodollars or we are adding Bitcoin as an option. To me, that's when we'll see Bitcoin as officially become a global reserve currency. That I think will be the First big key player to go, this makes sense. We don't need to hold US dollars anymore to transact in commodities. We can do it in Bitcoin. But your point about liquidity, something actually I actually had not pondered. I'm going to
0: dive into that. Um, there are three factors. There are three factors. And I was listening to uh, this energy doctor talk about this particular point. Um, to have To add a currency to use in oil transactions it needs to to have three conditions. It needs to have enough liquidity. It should have uh, low volatility and it should have uh, complete acceptability from OPEC as a total. Mm. So uh, liquidity might be okay, but volatility will still be an issue to use Bitcoin. um, We say
2: that, but look at the US dollar, the pound and everything going on in Forex markets right now. (laughs)
0: Yeah, true. Like (laughs) Nike today dropped uh, uh, 18% or yesterday, uh, the first time since 2001. And like, yeah, but Mm -hmm. still um, volatility decreases over time, but uh, we're talking about a long time now.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So what are you guys excited about in Bitcoin? Not particularly just in the Middle East, but um, what is it you guys are working on? What is it you're seeing on your horizon that you're excited about in Bitcoin coming up?
1: Uh, I heard that Taro is on the way. I think uh, Taro would uh, bring a lot of innovation to to Bitcoin. I'm not sure how uh, technically it works. Uh, Taro is a uh, is a protocol de- developed by Lightning Labs, and it allows for assets and uh, tokens, stable coins, to be uh, issued uh, on top of Bitcoin. That's what I heard. And it uses uh, Taproot, the new update. And I, I think in, in general, stable coins are really needed, especially in the Middle East. And if we can find a way to build wallets that have Bitcoin and stable coins only, uh, that would be amazing. Uh, right now, we uh, the best, the most amazing wallets are Bitcoin-only wallets coin wallets are disaster man. in terms of security and privacy. And also user experience, they're very bad. And, uh, you know, you need to connect to Tron or wherever to use USDT. But if you have Lightning, Bitcoin, uh, USDT or something like that, uh, that would be amazing. Uh, and uh, I think that will bring a lot of adoption, uh, a lot of Bitcoin adoption to the Middle East. Um right now what we're doing we're trying to build a lightning community a community of uh, people who run the lightning protocol uh, and that can connect with uh, other people in the middle east maybe maybe also help people bootstrap their lightning store that's one of our future projects we want to teach people how from from a to z how uh, they can launch a website and uh, list their services or products and then sell them uh, for sets. And because the problem with Bitcoin right now in the Middle East is that uh, you can't tell a Middle Eastern person to just buy Bitcoin, just save in Bitcoin because they don't have any money to save. Like most, most people, I mean, I mean, if if we're talking about like people in Lebanon and Syria and the Sudan and Egypt, it's like they're barely, uh, you know, making it till the end of the month. And so, uh, saving in Bitcoin is unfortunately is not a scalable, uh, message. The, if you want to convince people or something, they need to earn Bitcoin. If, if we can find a way to bootstrap, uh, uh, lightning circular economy, that would be, I mean, that would be amazing. That would be like the ultimate, um, the ultimate project that could help the Middle East. Uh, like, uh, uh, basically, we, we have a lot of divide everywhere in the Middle East, everywhere. And so there, there's no, uh, there's no invention, there's no uh, ideology, there's no... Um, Religion or anything that can unite people in the Middle East, if the economic situation is really bad, and building lightning, uh, I think that's the only way to, uh, you know, cool down the uh, the conflicts everywhere. I think
2: there's conflict in the Middle East. You don't say. <laughs> Yeah. I actually agree very much with this because, and this is where recently I've gone to, if you fix the money, fix the world. I believe there's a lot of truth in that. Um, yeah, and my background in foreign, not foreign aid, but my background in the aid was to focus on poverty. And that is the root cause of our problems is if people are unable to feed themselves, then you're going to have problems. Um, so yeah, so very much. Yeah, um, ec- you're echoing a lot of what I'm feeling. Sorry, Sully. Please, what, what about you?
0: What I'm excited about, um, I don't want to seem very toxic, but uh, I do. I do believe that uh, I've been repeating this on all podcasts when they ask me this. Just like people learn either by being intellectually curious or through pain and um today in 2022 despite everything happening in the world the under- understanding money has been at its best uh since humans discovered money in my opinion there are more transparency thanks to these communication channels the like there are so much awareness about what is money we're still very early but there's still a lot to be done yes but i think with We're we're entering a a fiat collapse, um, whereby small countries, emerging markets will be collapsing if they don't have serious source of income that is reliable. Um, And when people start to lose their own life savings, they're going to start looking for a store of value. When they look for a store of value, they look for apartments, they look for lands. But what if they don't have enough money to buy land or buy an apartment? So they start looking for Rolexes, for bags. This is all what I've witnessed, like inflation in Lebanon, inflation in Angola and other places. The same trend happening. And then you have capital controls. And then they the people start hearing that there are other ways. What are the other ways? And Bitcoin is a way. And this is when Bitcoin adoption and and learning about Bitcoin and using Bitcoin for your own freedom, for your family freedom, for your life savings would happen. Um, I'm excited to see how the adoption is going to accelerate in the coming uh few years to come it's going to be uh we're going to be facing um tough winters as the energy ministers have been uh, saying in europe but it's going to be all over the world um everyone is pricing and inflation coming but rare are the people that are pricing and the stagflation that might be coming the recession that might be coming for a couple of years there are like this nice graph that was i don't know uh, on twitter today i saw it i shared it to the on telegram like they they've they've But the history of all bear markets since 1945. And um, post-inflation, you have a pause before the crash. And we haven't paused yet. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is if history is to be repeated. Um, And what I'm working on, frankly, uh, I've been super busy these days. But I'm trying to contribute to any group of Bitcoiners trying to make something from translating content to uh, podcast contribution to orange billing on a personal level. I'm down the mining rabbit hole this month. Uh, Yeah, I think um, it's time to build. It's time to see if you have a a low energy bill. Let's start mining. Let's connect. (laughs) I'd love to learn more. Our recent episode was actually with the CEO of a new mining company and we talked about
2: that in detail. So, um, nice, it would be going down that way nice. as well. Yeah. Cool. Guys, this has been an absolute pre- pleasure for me personally, not just talking about Bitcoin, but catching up with, um, yeah, my, uh, Ashab from the Middle East because it, it's, yeah, it's, it was part of my culture was, was the Middle East. And, um, yeah, I, I'm keen to get back there and, and get, get back to my roots. And, um, it'd be fascinating to combine traveling the middle east again and talking to people about bitcoin so it's uh thank you it's been a real pleasure for me so
1: alf shukran Likewise, thank you for this likewise thanks for watching or listening if you enjoyed this podcast please like subscribe and share so we can spread this educational content to others like yourself visit bitcoinbasics.help
2: disclaimer Any content provided by CoinCompass is for educational and informational purposes only and is not investment, legal, tax, or any other professional advice. A qualified professional should be consulted before making any financial decisions. CoinCompass will at times recommend certain products, services, and technologies, but these are opinions based upon our own or podcast guests' experience and not endorsements. We take no liability for out-of-date or inaccurate information, software bugs, manufacturing errors, technology misuse, or issues
1: involving third parties. Visit CoinCompass.com for more information and please contact us.